0: So welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean and Say hello to everybody, Sean. Hello, everyone. Very good. Very well done. That's all you'll hear from Sean today. Thank you. um, Here we are now on month eight of COVID-19 lockdown, month eight. And uh, it's been a very long time since Sean has either taken a shower or gotten a haircut. Right, Sean?
1: part of that is true part of it is not it's not month eight we're a couple of weeks into it but we're doing this remotely but we're still trying to do this and keep you entertained if you can call this entertainment my mother calls it entertainment Sean. me too but that's where it ends and today we have a special
0: guest but before we get to our special guest shot where can they find us
1: They can find us online at kbklawyers.com, and the podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you can subscribe and ask us questions or come up with suggestions or voice your complaints about Brian like many others do.
0: Nope, nobody complains about me, Sean. Nobody, not a single person has ever complained about me. Um, So our special guest today is Harry Chamberlain, who I consider to be one of the finest appellate lawyers in the state of California, not the least of which is he's represented me on at least three or four occasions, maybe more. Uh, Never had a loss, always represented me and my firm when it comes to some defendant who's angry because I've sued them, um, decides to fight back and sue me, and Harry's an expert on anti-slap. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about civility in the courts. We're going to talk about what he's doing, what his firm's doing, where his expertise is during this COVID-19 crisis and how it affects his clients. But let's first start by getting to know Harry. So Harry, uh, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. Very well done. Uh, Now, Harry, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about your background, where you're from and where you went to school and all that kind of stuff.
2: Well, I'm a Navy kid. Uh I grew up in San Diego. My dad was uh, a pilot at North Island. And uh my family didn't travel much because we pretty much stayed in San Diego. It's a, it's a tough place to leave. I went to San Diego state, so I'm a I'm a local product all the way. Uh and uh then about 40 years ago went to law school uh, at Hastings. Um got involved in some of the fire cases uh, in Las Vegas for four or five years. And that's how you accidentally become both an appellate lawyer and an insurance lawyer. Uh, and, uh, then as a, as a younger lawyer, uh, I worked in-house for insurance companies. I became the general counsel of a, uh, small group of California professional liability insurers. And we did among other things, lawyers and accountants, insurance agents and brokers. And then in the early and mid nineties, uh, I managed the law department for a national group of uh, insurers uh, on the East Coast in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, when I came back to California in about 95, uh, I started doing a whole lot of work for lawyers on both sides of, of the bar. Uh, we had something uh, that was fast becoming the anti-slap statute, and today it's a cottage industry. Unfortunately, when it was originally enacted to protect uh, rights of free speech and petition activity, including those of us who practice law and represent other folks in in court proceedings, uh, was supposed to supposed to actually sunset in about five years. And today, there are thousands of uh, California precedents that deal with anti-slap, so it's still around, uh, and lawyers are still targets uh, of the things that they do in representing the folks that you represent.
1: So, Sean, you want to ask uh, Harry a question? Sure. And and uh, you were just talking about anti-slap, Harry. Why is anti-slap so important, particularly for the plaintiff's bar? And, and how have you seen it develop and evolve? And what role have you played in setting a lot of those precedents? Because I know you have. Sure. When, when it first started out,
2: uh, it was opposed by a lot of folks. It was opposed by businesses. It was opposed by real estate concerns. Uh, it had been dubbed... Um, you know, the, the, the Sierra Club uh, tree hugger statute, uh, but it's far more than that. It protects anything uh, that is First Amendment based. And if you think about it, any kind of petition that you file, that means a lawsuit, that means a complaint, that means speaking out loud at a deposition, representing a client in any capacity, is protected First Amendment petition activity going all the way back to the 1700s. We have thought that is very important, including uh, the the right to represent people in courts, the rights to have a jury trial. Those things are are uh, and, a trues we hold self evident. And the and anti-slap statute
0: to be perfectly clear for Shot because he doesn't understand this. Harry and I were not practicing law back in the 1700s. I just want to make that perfectly clear, Shot.
1: Okay, I figured Harry wasn't, but but I thought you
2: were. But thank you. Thank right. You. Exactly. I, I thought I recognized you in that powdered wig, but no, I'm not. I'm not really well,
0: that's, sure. That's a different story. We don't talk about that on the radio
2: here. Okay, uh, but it, it it is important stuff. And in the early '90s, uh, flowing out of uh, cases that involved the absolute litigation privilege, the right of access to the courts, uh, my office and and my practice uh, was basically devoted to lawyer-related work, and I argued a case in the Supreme Court that was one of the precursors of the anti slap statute. It was a case called Reuben v. Green, uh, represented uh, some clients who were uh, activists in the the mobile home park residence community. Uh, They were uh, often encouraged and educated uh, through various programs by lawyers who represented uh, mobile home park residents, and for their troubles, everybody got sued. Uh, our client Norma Green, who was—I'm uh, sure she has passed on by now—a very nice uh, older lady uh, who lived in a mobile home park in the uh, in the Inland Empire—consulted uh, lawyers, uh, got her neighbors to go to meetings and to hear from them about uh, what their rights were. Those lawyers and Norma. Norma was sued as a capper and a runner, and the lawyers were sued for alleged uh, illegal solicitation.
0: So, Harry, one of the things um, I don't think a lot of, you know, a lot of the folks that listen to our podcast haven't been practicing law as long as you and I have. In fact, I'd venture to say that probably most of them haven't been practicing law as as long as you and I have. And I don't think that younger lawyers today, meaning somebody who's, you know, probably 50 or, or younger, actually. Even remembers what it was like back in the time when um, any lawyer who would lose a case, particularly a plaintiff's lawyer who would lose a case, would almost always stand the risk of being sued for malicious prosecution. Right, and it was terrible because um, you know nobody likes to get sued, right? I get that, and oftentimes people will ask me; they'll say they'll ask me a fact, non-lawyer friends, they'll ask me a fact pattern, and they say, always say, Brian, will this get me sued? And my response always is, look, $500 in a complaint in the LA Superior Court can get anybody sued. Doesn't mean it's meritorious. But the point being that you would lose a case and you would almost always get some threat of malicious prosecution. Why don't you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, and that has continued to this day. But the, the, the high tide of that uh, was certainly in the late 1990s, early 2000s. in fact, uh, the ABA had uh, the Standing Committee on Professional Responsibility had done a survey as of 2001. If you were a lawyer in Los Angeles or San Francisco, San Diego, a major market on the West Coast, you were more likely to be sued for malicious prosecution by a third party, than by your own client for malpractice, and that's how prevalent these cases were. So the importance of cases like Reuben v. Green, which dealt with formation of that attorney-client relationship when you were trying to talk to your clients about their potential legal rights, about potential legal actions, when the case had come to fruition and maybe the evidence had not been as strong as you thought it might have been when the case began, you took the case to trial, you ended up losing it, which happens in trials. I've heard that even really superb trial lawyers lose trials, and I know that to be the case. It's, it's, if you've never lost a case, you've never tried a hard one. And lawyers were on the receiving end when that happened of not only threats, but actual lawsuits for malicious prosecution and, and, uh, and various litigation, we call them derivative torts, torts that derive from the things you did in lawsuits. You insulted somebody at a deposition and it's defamation, that kind of thing. The, the absolute litigation privilege and the anti-slap statute work hand in hand this way. Uh, you have a right to represent your clients. It, it, if you communicate something that offends someone else, well, it's absolutely privileged. It, it's not something that can be the basis for a legal action. And when a an unsuccessful lawsuit is brought and then disposed of in a manner that's not favorable to the plaintiff, you're not automatically subject to a lawsuit for malicious prosecution. Somebody has to demonstrate that what you did was absolutely frivolous, that no other reasonable lawyer would have done that. And when the anti-slap statute comes into play in one of the cases we worked on early in the in the progress of the anti-slap statute was a case called uh, Gero Formulas versus Lamarche. I represented one of the defendants before the Supreme Court in that and case.
1: And that's like a seminal case, right? In in anti-slap,
2: it it, it, it is. It's one of them. It, it was decided in the early two thousands, and uh, it was a case that that stood for the proposition. If you want to think about this, that every time a case is filed, that is protected First Amendment petition activity. And before then, only a couple of courts, a court in Massachusetts, a court in Maine, had said that, had said, well, gee, when you file a lawsuit, that must be something that's protected by the First Amendment. So what the anti-slap statute does is it requires a screening of that case. doesn't mean that malicious prosecution cases can never be filed. It means that you have to have a preview of what the evidence would be at trial. And that's the important thing about the anti-slap statute. When it comes into play, you must preview the merits of your case if you intend to attack somebody who is simply going about exercising his or her First Amendment rights, and that includes lawyers. And the outcome of that case, uh, in, in that case, the a um, uh, motion for summary judgment had been granted before trial. And our Supreme Court said that does not necessarily establish lack of probable cause. That simply establishes that there wasn't sufficient evidence to go forward. So we have to examine the merits of why every element of malicious prosecution can be satisfied before that case can proceed. Because the and that
1: examination happens up front, right? When you when you bring your malicious prosecution action and the other side files an anti slap motion to strike, that examination happens up front, correct? Exactly. And it's an evidentiary
2: showing. Ideally, it's supposed to happen within 60 days after you've been served. These days, it's a few months after you've been served. And it's an evidentiary hearing. It's a presentation on both sides where both sides show their cards. So it's a very powerful uh, procedural device when it applies. Uh, a defamation cases, a case that we worked on together, uh, where uh, Brian and and your firm and other uh, well-known, well-respected plaintiff lawyers in our legal community uh, were warning people about, uh, you know, suspect medical devices. They were going on television and saying you want to look out for certain things because uh, there's been a a suit filed and there have been investigations conducted uh, about whether the FDA has approved certain uh, spinal implant devices. And, and here are the things you want to be, be wary of and concerned about. And by reporting the circumstances of that case, you are also constitutionally protected and protected by statute. This statute is a qualified immunity. Uh, it's called the fair report privilege. But if you give a fair report of what's going on in a lawsuit, or investigations that are being conducted by government agencies for the health and welfare of the community. You have an absolute right to do that. And that kind of thing, uh, is, is screened by the anti-slap statute until a few years ago. Uh, that had been a little bit unclear. And now it's crystal clear that you as lawyers have the right to speak out. Just do so in two ways. One, be accurate about what you're telling the public. Okay, you always want to be accurate. And if you're reporting things that are happening in a lawsuit under this fair report doctrine, be sure that you're reporting it fairly and accurately. And if you do, you're going to be protected.
1: That's, so that's, I think that's a good public service type of uh, announcement for people to keep in mind, plaintiff lawyers especially, in order to avail themselves to mm-hmm. those protections. And, and Harry, I know a lot of this case law develops on the appellate level too, um, and you are actually a certified appellate specialist, I believe. Yes. And in, in that context, could you tell us a little bit about, you know, similar to these words of wisdom, but words of wisdom for plaintiffs lawyers in general in their trial trial court level practice – that their appellate lawyers appreciate, and and I know it's probably a, you could probably put a seminar on about that, but but just in a few words, if you could tell us about things to keep in mind.
2: Oh, oh, sure. It, it always pays to be fair and accurate, and you know, like you like you tell your witnesses, tell the truth. It's easier to remember. Uh, it's it's very important, not only for your credibility as trial lawyers, but certainly when you go up on appeal, uh, that the things you say. Not only have the ring of truth, but have evidence to support the truth. And, uh, so it, it's, it's not only important to, to maintain the quality of what you do, but to, to maintain the discipline when you're talking about it in public, uh, to assure everyone that you know what you're talking about. All right. And if you don't, well, then, then, then what you do in court, you should do in court. And you should litigate your cases there. But if you have something of interest to say, and, and I, I do want to commend people to this smart v. Kabatek case. Unfortunately, it's got Brian's firm's name on it. But read that case. It's a very good treatment by an appellate court in Los Angeles of the do's and don'ts of what you do in, in talking to the press, uh, in sitting before a camera. Uh, and giving an account of things that people should be concerned about, because there's an acknowledgement here by appellate courts Just and the by our legislature I that did, you should
0: be doing that. You I need to be doing right. that. I did everything right in the way I talked to the press about that specific case. You did. That's what the court said. And it was a vindictive, vicious felon who's now in federal prison related to the subject matter of the of the case. Who decided he wanted to get even for us going out in the media and talking about this? So, Harry, let me change subjects here because we could talk anti slap the whole 20, 30 minutes that we're going to go today. But let's change subjects. Let's talk about something that, um, you know, is an increasing problem in the legal community, which is civility or the lack thereof. And uh, I think, you know, my working theory is that the Real downturn in civility, although it certainly started before the year about 2000, but right around the turn of the century with the advent of emails and now texting and messaging and instant time communicating and no person-to-person contact with people, uh, you can go an entire case without having personal contact with your opposing counsel, really, in the sense of meeting them or talking to them. I think it's just um, ramped up dramatically as a result of that. But, but uh, you know, you've been involved in the, both the Los Angeles County Bar and other bar associations and as a leader among lawyers. Well, what are your thoughts about the civility issues these days?
2: It's, it's absolutely essential and, if anything, more essential in, in the world we live in now where we have to shelter in place and, and communicate eight, eight remotely. Uh, this is eight months we've been doing this, right? <laughs> or, or at least a month. But it's it seems like forever. Uh, the need to uh, be collegial, the need to get along. I mean, I, I've seen the, the emergency orders that the governor and the chief justice in the past week uh, have issued, encouraging lawyers not only to get along, but insisting that cooperation is essential. We're going to be taking depositions for some time uh, as a result of this crisis remotely. That requires uh, discipline and and getting along in scheduling. That requires that we make accommodations to our colleagues uh, across the aisle. Uh, and that we, we do this in a way that's not only professional. So hopefully we can use uh, the current circumstances as a training ground uh, and a proving ground for the things that we talk about all the time. I, I saw that my former association, I'd been president of Association of Southern California Defense Council. Brian has been president of several plaintiff bars and our local bar, the uh, the Los Angeles County Bar Association. Uh, but a, a joint letter went out last week of the need for lawyers to get along because that serves everybody's client. We're we're going to come out on the other end of this. We're going to have scheduling issues. We all need to get to trial. We all need to have access to the courts because at the end of the day, we all go to work at the same place.
1: So, and Harry, uh, I have a question kind of going back to some of the your thoughts on appellate work or your experiences doing appellate work. And when it comes to young lawyers, there's a subset of young plaintiff lawyers who really enjoy kind of the law and motion work and the legal issues, and they don't like the daily grind of depositions and document review and, and getting mired in discovery what advice would you have to uh, young lawyers considering going down the path of doing appellate work or maybe even becoming a certified specialist? What, what yeah, is your experience right. like? It's and a what advice
0: How, how does somebody become a certified appellate specialist too?
2: Yeah, it's, it, it's by accident. I had worked for criminal lawyers out of a district attorney's office uh, in the early 1980s. I've been doing this 40 years now. I know it seems like yesterday, even though eight months uh, shelter in place seems like yesterday too. Uh, but you, I was the law and motion lawyer for five real trial lawyers who were in trial every day. And so I did the law and motion and when a writ was necessary, I had to write the writ. When an appeal was necessary, I had to write the appeal. And because nobody was ever around, I had to argue those appeals too. And so, you know, be careful what you do, whether you, whether or not you do it well, because if you do it halfway, uh, okay, you'll be asked to do it repeatedly. And so uh, for those lawyers who are good at writing, which is a real important skill, if you're going to be a lawyer, uh, look it up. People will tell you. Uh, it's a real important skill. It's got real value. You can be a little more cerebral. Uh, you know, you can quote Shakespeare, but it is it is a talent that if you cultivate it properly, uh, you will have a long, long career doing things and, and and writing things and assisting uh, superb trial lawyers like Brian and Shant in getting the job done when they get there. If you can make it simple, if you can make it understandable, if you can make it entertaining for a judge, you're going to go a long way to persuading somebody very important uh, that you are on the right side of your case.
0: Well, let's have some fun. Um, At this point, this is what we like to call speed dating when we have guests on our show. And we get to ask you, Harry, silly questions. And here's the thing is because it's speed dating, we're just going to go very quick. So these are very silly questions. Maybe not that silly. And um, you respond and then we're going to ask you a a handful of these questions. Okay? so Sean, you want
1: to go first? Sure, and mine's not that silly. If you weren't doing what you do, Harry, what would you be doing? If you weren't a lawyer, what, what would you want to be doing?
2: For, for fun or for, for a job? I'd always wanted to be a writer, and actually that's what I ended up doing. So, you know, some, some days I write 100 pages of copy. Uh, so it's I, – I think I would be writing fiction. Maybe, maybe I already do that for a living as an appellate specialist. <laughs>
0: so what, what's your favorite book?
2: Oh, golly, that's a good one. That is a good one Oh, I and actually it's an easy one. uh the killer Angels by uh, Michael Shara okay what's it about it, it, It's seconds. a book about my ancestor uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. It's a book about uh, Gettysburg. in fact, the movie Gettysburg was based on his book, and it, it's a brilliant concept if you want to invent yourself do it like he did. He was a history professor who loved the Civil War. He loved the Battle of Gettysburg because he thought it was the, the focal point of our union. Uh, and he read letters by everybody who was involved in that battle. And he turned it into a first-person narrative in their own words about what they were doing in those three days. And it's amazing. So I commend that to you, the killer angels. Sean, your question?
1: Um, what's your favorite
2: meal or favorite food, Harry? Oh, golly, Uh, too, too many, too many to name. Um, uh, I like meat. I'm a meat eater. So I, uh, you know, I like, I like street tacos in LA. We have some of the best in the world. So I like that kind of food.
0: Okay. So um, what song would you say best describes you?
2: Oh, I don't know. I, I think the song that my, my wife plays a little guitar and one of her favorite songs, she's a, fan of credence but i think she would uh, tell me that that the sh- song that best describes me is probably bad moon rising
1: that's pretty good um harry what's one habit that you have that you formed over the course of your career that you think is indispensable and and, and it's a it's been a key to your success like a get it ball.
2: done e- get it done early don't 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 procrastinate don't leave it uh, to another day Uh, get up and there's a, there's, there's a book out there. It's a self-improvement book called eat that frog, get up and eat that frog. Go do it.
0: If you had a superpower, what would your superpower be? Hmm. Maybe you have
2: everybody, everybody is supposed to say, I would like to be able to fly. Um, no, not me, but not me. Um, I don't know. Time travel. That might be fun. That's a good one. In both directions. Both directions.
1: Uh, your favorite place in the world, aside from being in the office,
2: I don't know. I th- I think the favorite place I've ever been um, is uh, Tahiti. I could I could probably live there for a little while.
0: Assume that assume that this lockdown ends at some point. What point? What part of the world would you like to go that you've never been?
2: I would like to visit Asia. Uh, I, I uh, extensively, and that's, that's a lot, that's a lot of ground to cover. Um, Uh, I, you know, I, my, my wife has promised me for years that she's going to take me to Paris and never has. So we've got to get that trip out of the way too.
1: Uh, what did you want to do when you were growing up, Harry? I wanted to be a
2: lawyer from the time I was about 13, 14 years old. My, my grandmother told me, uh, you know, you can argue till you're blue in the face. You ought to become a lawyer. And I said, yes, that's right.
0: Harry, if this um, shutdown ended tomorrow, what would be the first thing you do? I think I'd go out
2: and ride a bike with my dogs. Maybe take them to the beach, and you know that's something that you're limited in doing um, right now. And it's important; it's appropriate. We maintain physical distance, and I understand that. But you know, this is one. This is one of the insidious things about the crisis we're going through right now. You can't get up and get out and do even ordinary things. Legitimately, we're closing the beaches. We're closing state parks and parking lots and things like that. Uh, I, get out there. Uh, you know, I, I wrote something recently that the practice of law is a contact sport. Uh, you want to get out there. You want to talk to your colleagues and, and be with them, be involved in bar groups, uh, get out there and socialize with your clients and that kind of thing. I'd like to do more of that once we get out on the other end.
0: Well, we're really fortunate today to have Harry Chamberlain as our guest on Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnakian. Harry, you are, uh, as I've said often, you're one of the most brilliant people I know, one of the best appellate lawyers in California, maybe the whole United States of America. Uh, It's certainly an honor to have you on today, and we appreciate it very much.
2: Very kind. Stay safe, guys.
1: Thank you, Harry. You want to wrap it up? sure um you can find us at kbklawyers.com and uh harry's over at buck so if you want to check him out or if you ever need to talk to him he's an incredible resource he's taught me everything i know about anti-slap which is very minimal but um check him out get in touch with him if you need anything from him and subscribe to the podcast and send us your feedback or complaints about brian and we look forward to no, hearing no from
0: you no complaints about brian thank you harry it's been a pleasure thank you all very much